Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In 2005, four men were inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Dan Marino, the great quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. Steve Young, the Super Bowl-winning quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. Fritz Pollard, the great running back of the 1920s and the first African-American head coach in NFL history. And quarterback Benny Friedman. Most fans of the game have never heard of Friedman, but what he did on the field reshaped how the game of football is played today. In fact, the legendary George Hallis said of Friedman, he forced defenses out of the dark ages. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of the game's first real passing star, Benny Friedman. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, football is upon us and quarterback battles have been waged in many camps the last few weeks. Jets camp, Houston, Jacksonville, and of course, Cleveland. The Browns have turned to rookie Deshaun Kaiser. It's certainly not the first time Cleveland has started a rookie, and it won't be the last. You know, long before the Browns, Cleveland was home to a team called the Bulldogs. And in 1927, the Bulldogs signed a young quarterback who would start in the Big Ten for the Michigan Wolverines. His name, Benny Friedman. From Brooklyn, New York, Friedman revolutionized the game of football with his skills at passing the ball. Playing quarterback at the time was anything but glamorous, and it was largely a running game. But Friedman threw the ball. In fact, he threw it better than anyone who had ever played the game. The great Red Grange said of Friedman, he was the best quarterback I ever played against. The New York Daily News said he is the greatest forward passer in the history of the game. No other passer has his accuracy, his judgment of distance, his intuitive ability to pick out the best receiver. And the great Newt Rockney said he could hit a dime at 40 yards. Following his first season with Cleveland, the Bulldogs moved to Detroit. And Friedman continued to set the league on fire. He was so good that Tim Mara, the owner of the New York Giants, wanted him so badly that after being rebuffed in trades, he bought the entire Detroit franchise, folded the team, and put Friedman to work as quarterback of the Giants. It was a move that paid immediate dividends. The Giants had fallen on hard times. In 1928, they were 4-7-2 and lost $54,000, a lot of money back in the 1920s. But with Friedman in the lineup, the Giants turned things around, and this was at the same time that the country had fallen into the Great Depression. In 1929, they made $8,500, $23,000 in 1930, and $35,000 in 1931, and they were winning on the field, too. 
In 1929, they went 13-1-1 and, and followed that with a 13-4 mark in 1930. Benny missed the first four games of the 1931 season, but New York still went 7-6-1. Joining Sports Forgotten Heroes in just a moment to talk about Benny Friedman will be Lee Elder from the Professional Football Researchers Association. First, though, for more information about Benny, please visit sportsfh.com. To show your support for the podcast, please visit our fan page on patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. Follow us on Twitter at sportsfheroes or look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. Back to Benny. During the time he played quarterback, roughing the passer was a part of the game. If the quarterback threw two straight incomplete passes, the team was penalized. And if the quarterback threw an incomplete pass into the end zone, it was ruled a turnover. It was a tough time to be a quarterback. And the ball was significantly rounder than it is today. Yeah, playing quarterback was not easy. But Friedman knew how to grip that thing and throw it with uncanny accuracy. He led the NFL in touchdown passes in each of his first four years, including 20 touchdown passes in 1929 and four in one game. Mind you, not a single other team threw as many as 20 touchdown passes in a whole season until 1942. Yes, Benny Friedman indeed revolutionized the game. And joining the podcast to talk about Benny Friedman is Lee Elder from the Professional Football Researchers Association. And to start my interview with him, I asked Lee where Benny learned the game. Well, Benny Friedman was a first-generation American. His parents uh, immigrated, I believe, from Russia before he was born. And uh, so the game did not come to him uh, in any way except his own personal interest. Uh, you know, so many, so many players from that era, uh, their fathers didn't play the game because the game wasn't really around, and so sure. it became something that they were interested in. But I think one of the reasons that people don't really know a lot about Benny is that um, his primary contributions were less about what he did on the field and more about what he showed could be done on the field. Hmm. I know you know your history. So if you uh, think back to the fact that Theodore Roosevelt was the president of the United States after the turn of the century, and he was threatening to ban the game of football unless the rules makers found a way to open it up and cut down on the deaths that were occurring in the game at that time. And I really believe that 20-some-odd years later when Benny started playing in the National Football League and showed what could be done with the forward pass, that helped change the game. Right. Uh, uh, George Hallis, who's probably the foremost expert, I think you'll agree with me on the early years of the game, said that it was Benny's um, ability to throw the football that convinced the powers that be to change the shape of the football and make it more uh, easy to throw. And that opened up the game a little bit, and I believe that that played a very solid role in uh, changing it toward the game that we have today. You, you mentioned about the deaths in football. There were, that was a common thing. It was a really violent game, much more violent than it is today. Can you speak to me a little bit about that? Well, 
in those days, the game was largely played by men who didn't wear helmets. If they did wear helmets, they were just, they didn't do much except protect their hair. I don't think they were made out of leather and they didn't really protect them from much injury. So uh, it was a very, very different game and they did not, they didn't have the T formation. They used things like the flying wedge, which was really just a, just an assault type of offense. And uh, it was a, it was a very, very hard, difficult game to play. Imagine playing today's game of football without pads. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that is not an easy thing to do. And uh, that's the way that the game was. But I believe that Benny's Friedman's primary contribution was showing what could be done to further open up the game uh, in the late 1920s. And let's face it, um, he put people in the stands. Yeah, he, so, sh- he, he sure did. I mean, we're going to get into this later, I know, but you know, the New York Giants bought a franchise just to get him. So, I mean, when, when, you, when you save a franchise and change the shape of the ball, you're going to find yourself in a Hall of Fame somehow. You know, what I think makes his story even more unusual is the fact that Benny was an Orthodox Jew. And if you think about that today, there aren't a lot of Jews in sports, particularly football. Sure, you had Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg in baseball. But how unusual was it for a Jewish boy to play football? Well, I have to be honest with you. I don't have any idea. Um, I I really don't know. I've never thought about researching to find out what somebody's faith was. I have absolutely no idea whatsoever uh, how unusual it was or how common it might have been. I don't know. Do you know, though, however, if he did observe the Sabbath, the, the, the Jewish holidays, or how his parents felt about him playing the game? That I don't know, but um, I do know that typically uh, the pro football games have always been played on Sunday because you don't want they didn't want to conflict with college football, which was the more popular game at that time. Sure. And so, as I understand the faith, um, the Sabbath is a Saturday uh, most weeks, and if that's the case, then playing a professional football game shouldn't have been that big a deal for him. Right. If I understand it correctly. Right. You know, he led his high school to championships, and he won championships at the University of Michigan, too. And you just alluded to the college game. And that's where he really established himself. He established himself under Fielding Yost at uh, Michigan. What can you tell me, if anything, about his college career? For me, it's mostly anecdotal. But primarily what, what Benny did, again, was show what could be done. Um, the college game was was a little bit different from the professional game in those days, like it is now. And he, primarily, what he did was show what what could be done with the game of football, particularly on the offensive side, with a guy who knew how to put the ball in the air just a little bit. Remember, in those days, uh, an incomplete pass was a five yard penalty. Yeah, it's crazy to think about the penalties that were inflicted upon a team for an incomplete pass. Well, it's it's crazy to think about it in 2017. Uh, in 1917, it was probably a little bit less crazy. I mean, the other thing is you had to be a minimum of five yards behind the original line of scrimmage in order to throw it. Um, 
so <laughs> when you think about it, the restrictions they put on throwing the football in those days were uh, they were quite discouraging. You know, you just you just really didn't want to have to throw it because uh, you had the outstanding opportunity to get penalized for it. So, right. uh, and then when you realize that the the standard as I understand it, the, the standard passing in those days did not reach a 50% completion rate. Now you're saying to yourself, do I really, unless you're way behind late in the game, you just didn't want to throw the football. Right, right. As a coach, now players probably loved it, but as a coach, and we know that coaches tend to have to look at things a little bit differently than the players do, always have, always will, uh, they, they, they look at it as a potential for a penalty rather than a potential for a big game. When we think about the NFL today, we think about teams like the New York Giants and the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago Bears. They were the obvious teams that that moved on from that era of football. But there were some other teams there, too, that a lot of people don't know about. You had Providence, Duluth, Canton, Portsmouth. There was Detroit, Frankfurt. There was a different Buffalo team. There was a team in Staten Island. And some of those teams were actually true barnstormers from the standpoint of they never played a home game. Tell me about some of those teams that Benny Friedman played against. Well, my favorite barnstorming team, of course, is the team from Los Angeles, which I don't think ever went west of the Mississippi River. Hmm. Uh, I believe it was the Los Angeles Wildcats. And that's that's my favorite story because I'm a native Angelino. But uh, you're right. There, there were teams that, that very seldom, if ever, played at home. They were there primarily to... Uh, to give uh, the home team a home game. Uh, you know, they, they had teams like that in the league frequently. Um, so Benny played against a lot of the teams that you just mentioned, and then there were others that he played for that are just as obscure. He played in 1927 as a rookie for the Cleveland Bulldogs. Now, Cleveland had a lot of teams through the years uh, in the NFL before the Browns came over from the AAFC, which we just talked about. But, you know, they in 1927, that was their final year. Benny's rookie year was their last year. Wow. And then he played for the, the, the much the much lost Detroit Wolverines in 1928, um, another team that didn't last more than one year after Benny was a member. He, he was a big star there, but um, they were in deep financial trouble. That's the reason that Tim Mara, who owned the Giants, bought the Wolverines because they were broke. Uh, it was the only way the owner could get out of financial trouble. And so in order to get Benny Friedman, Tim Mara saw a weakness in Detroit, and he bought the uh, bought the ball club, took a few players to his team, and primarily because he wanted Benny Friedman. So there, there were a lot of teams that, I mean, Benny finished his career with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And most people wouldn't relate the Brooklyn Dodgers with football. You hear no, Brooklyn they wouldn't. Dodgers, you hear baseball. You, you hear Drysdale and Koufax and Campanella, you don't hear Friedman. But uh, that, nonetheless, the fact uh, exists that, that the Brooklyn Dodgers were a football team in the National Football League in the last three years that they existed. Uh, Benny was uh, a member of the ball club. You know, you talked about one of the things Benny's contributions to the game was what could be done. So tell me about the ball. Tell our audience about the ball, how different it was back then, and how hard it was actually to throw it. 
Well, not too long ago, I think I saw it on the NFL Network, there was a an hour-long documentary on the history of the forward pass, and it was fascinating. And they had Boomer Esiason, uh, who by then had retired as a quarterback, of course. He threw uh, most of the different iterations of the football for that program. And the one during Benny's era uh, that Boomer had a real tough time throwing was something like today's rugby ball, but Hmm. it was rounder, and it looked almost like a basketball. Hmm. When he first came into the league, the thing was just barely oblong. It was easy to kick, but it was was very difficult to throw, and I don't think it was real easy to catch uh, unless you had very large hands. But um, it was not really a throwing apparatus. the next ball that they came up with while he was still playing was a little bit more like today's ball, a little bit less like a rugby ball and getting closer to a football. It did have laces, but the laces were not um, as much uh, an aid to a quarterback or a passer as they are today. You know, the the laces in today's ball extend um, outside the plane, if you will, of the skin of the football. Uh, In those days, the laces really were just to tie everything together, and so they were not an aid for uh, spinning the ball as today's laces are. Why was Benny so much more proficient at throwing the football than the other quarterbacks at the same time? I suspect he was willing. Um, Benny was six feet tall, weighed 185 pounds. So he was uh, among the football players of the day. He was a good sized man, but he was not an overly large man. Um, but I believe that in Benny's particular case, he was willing to throw it. And that set him aside from many of the other players. Remember, in those days, they were not using the T formation. They were using the single wing, which is primarily a, uh, a running formation. Right. And he was not technically a quarterback. He was a tailback. He had the fullback, halfback, and tailback in those days. And so he, he received the snap from center most of the time, but he didn't have to. The center could have snapped it to any one of the other backs uh, in in that particular formation. And so um, I think in Benny's case, it was largely because he was willing. And then um, he was obviously more physically gifted in terms of throwing it than others were because he was good at it. You know, you mentioned earlier about the penalties that were imposed on a team for an incomplete pass and the fact that you had to throw the ball from five yards behind the line of scrimmage. The ball, you know, if the ball fell into the end zone incomplete, it was ruled a touchback. If you threw more than one incomplete during a uh, series, it garnered a five-yard penalty. There were severe penalties for incomplete passes. So throwing the ball was a huge risk. But Benny did it with uncanny accuracy. Was Benny the impetus for the change in the rules? I think so, and I think also, as I talked earlier, as I mentioned about Theodore Roosevelt and the uh, potential of banning the game because of the violence, I, I really think that at that point that the league and the people who ran it were looking for ways to open the game up, use more of the field, cut down on the, uh, I would guess you would call it the violence of the game, uh, cut down on the mass collisions and open the game up so that it's more one-on-one impact. And passing certainly does that. 
So I believe that as when I said that Benny's primary contribution was for showing what could be done, uh, I really believe that. And I think that the reason that they made that move primarily was, was that they took a look at um, how it opened the game up. And there's one other thing that we've already touched on, and that was that it was popular. Um, people oohed and awed at the, at the throwing and, um, because it was different and it was exciting and it uh, brought into football the potential for the quick strike. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that changed the game a little bit. That quick strike capability really changed things. You know, some writers called him the best player ever, period. And he was playing against Red Grange, Bronco Nagurski, Ernie Nevers. Yet we can remember them and not Benny Friedman. Why is that? Well, the first five years he was in the league, there weren't very many statistics. We know how many touchdowns he scored as a rusher. We know how many touchdown passes he threw, and that is fundamentally it. And when you don't have statistics, you cannot quantify what somebody did. Um, you have to rely on on evidence, uh, like I mentioned, uh, George Hallis saying that, that Benny changed uh, the way that, uh, that they made the ball because he showed that throwing it was exciting. Um, I just really believe that the, the, that the reason we don't remember Benny is that there aren't any hardcore quantifiable statistics that say he did this, he did that. I did come across um, one piece of information that unofficially he was the first to throw for 1,000 yards in one season. That would have been his first year hmm. with the New York Giants, uh, which was in 1929. And as much as you would like to have that be true, there's just no way of proving it or disproving it. Um, but the information is out there that he may have been the first to throw for 1,000 yards. There just aren't any statistics for it. But we do know that that season – he threw 20 touchdown passes, which the record stood for a long time until Sammy Baugh finally broke it. And um, when he threw those 20 touchdown passes, he he was the main reason that the Giants suddenly averaged 25,000 people a game. Right. Uh, when, you, when you bring 25,000 people into a game when they're accustomed to getting half that, um, then whatever you're doing is exciting. I read where he was the only player and still is the only player to ever lead the league in rushing and passing the same year. So think about that for a moment. Warren, I think that statistic might be a little off. I believe he was the only one um, to lead the league in rushing touchdowns and passing touchdowns the same year. Ah, okay. Because there are no yards. We don't, we don't have any, any rushing yards or passing yards statistics. Um, until, oh, I think it was 1932, by which time Benny was playing for Brooklyn. But then how did they, why again do we know Red Grange and Bronco Nagurski and Ernie Nevers? Why do we know those guys if there weren't, the stati- if statistics weren't kept, why do we know those guys and not Benny Friedman? Red Grange hired and maintained his own uh, manager, C.C. Pyle. And they called him Cash and Carry Pile. And uh, Pyle's only job was to keep track of Red Grange's statistics and then write uh, press releases about him and, and make sure every newspaper in the country knew about him. Uh, the second year that he was a pro, he left the Bears and formed his own league, the American Football League, for one year, and he played in New York. And you wow. can rest assured that every time he touched the ball, Pyle had it written down on a piece of paper somewhere. 
So I believe that a lot of the reason for uh, the difference, for example, between Red Grange and Benny Friedman is that Grange had statistics that he could show you. Uh, and Benny may not have had official statistics that he could show you. Interesting. The other th part to the Benny Friedman story is he played more than just quarterback. He played defense. He ran the ball. He was the team's kicker. The guy was just an all-around great player. He was an all-around great athlete. There's no question about it. Uh, and among, among players of the day, he was uh, unquestionably one of the best. But let's remember that everybody played both ways. It was single platoon football, and nobody came out of the game unless they were hurt. Uh, you couldn't, there, were, there were substitution rules that didn't allow that. So every team had to have a kicker. Every team had to have a good runner. Every team had to have a good defensive player. Uh, Benny was certainly among the best in the league, but we got to remember that everybody played both ways uh, in that era. You, you spoke about it before, about the Giants and, and Detroit. So Benny was a great ball player. And oh, in 1929, yeah. Tim Mara wanted him so bad, and Detroit wouldn't trade him to the Giants. They wouldn't sell him to the Giants so what does Mara do? He buys the entire team and combines them with his giants to build a powerhouse. It's amazing to think that if this didn't happen, there might not be a New York Giants football team. How important was Friedman to the Giants, to the success of football in New York, and to the success of professional football as a whole? Benny Friedman was huge. He was the key. Uh, let's take a look at what world history looked like at that point. 1929, in October, we had the stock market crash. And from that time on, in the United States, there was less and less easy to spend money. And with Benny Friedman attracting attention and attracting 25,000 people into uh, the Giants games, he gave the Giants something they did not have. He gave them a drawing card. And when money's tight, when the economy is beginning a downward spiral, you have to have a drawing card. The Giants were in trouble before the stock market crash, and the league was in trouble after the stock market crash. It was a very hard time to stay in business for any kind of business, but when you're depending on people to spend extra money to come see you play, uh, and there was no television in those days, there wasn't much radio, then you really needed something, and Benny was, uh, in my view, he was a savior to the New York Giants franchise, uh, and he was one of the reasons that the National Football League was able to keep in business during the Depression, because he was popular. He drew people with his exciting style of play and his ability to do things that others were not doing at that time, mainly throw the football. Uh, Benny Friedman was, was an exciting football player. And he drew people in the grandstands, and that's what you had to have. So in my view, he's one of the key reasons the New York Giants are still with us today. And yet, I got to go back to this. You just said all of this great stuff about Benny Friedman and how key he was to the success of the Giants, to the success of the National Football League, professional football. And it took all the way until 2005 until he was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That blows my mind. 
Well, it gets back to the, I can't speak for the Hall voters because I'm not one of them, uh, but I think partially it gets back to the lack of statistics. The other thing is that Benny never won a championship. He did a lot of winning. The teams that he was on were very successful, but he did not win a championship. And as you know, uh, champions get more members of the Hall of Fame than non-champions do. And what was it about that one team that continually got in his way of winning a championship, the Green Bay Packers? He just couldn't beat that team. Those pesky Packers. <laughs> you know what? Through the, through the history of the National Football League, there are a lot of teams who said if it wasn't for the Packers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we might have done something. And you're right, especially 1929. The, the Giants went 13-1-1. 13 1 and 1. Incredible. But there was there was no playoff system then. There was no two conference setup. There was just one list of teams, one league, and whoever had the best record at the end of the year, they were the champions. And uh the Packers lost, I'm sorry, the Packers beat the Giants in the middle of the season, and that was it. No matter what else uh, what else the Giants did, 13 1 and 1, we look at it today as, you know, hero worship right. but in those days 13-101 was second that's unbelievable isn't that something else now the packers had great players don't misunderstand me that was a you know of 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 the teams that existed in those days the bears and the packers were were two of the really great franchises uh, george hallis and curly lambeau were were men that you know just really understood running franchises and winning they were a great team um, and everything that Benny did with all of his teammates was just that little teeny bit short. Unreal. Unreal. You know, he had an uncanny ability to read defenses and exploit them. So in addition to being able to throw the ball, he knew where to throw it, and his – I always heard that if you ran your pattern correctly – and you turned around, the ball was there, especially for a guy like Joe Namath. But this is the way it was with Benny Friedman as well. If you ran your pattern correctly, the ball was there, and he knew how to read defenses. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, for anybody who throws the ball, and you know this as well as I do, accuracy is the Number one thing, it's the first thing anybody looks at when you're judging a quarterback, whether it's Namath or Marino or Friedman. And if, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, Benny Friedman went into the Hall of Fame the same year Dan Marino did, which I just think is delightful. Yeah, he did. But, but be that as it may, um, we, we look at the years that there are statistics for Benny, and his completion percentage from 32 on when he was playing for Brooklyn he led the league in completion percentage in 1933, was it 52.5%, I think. But for the total of those three years when there were statistics, his, his completion ratio was around 40%, 41%. So that was clearly toward the end of his career. He didn't play too many games in those years. And you have to think that his percentage was probably higher uh, in the other years, particularly in 29 when he had such a great, great year. But it's... The key to the whole thing, even in those days, the key to the whole thing is understanding what your team is going to do and understanding what the team in front of you may be going to do. 
And if, if you do both those things, if you anticipate well, then you've got a chance to be successful. And let's remember that he had a great college coach. Right. Fielding Yost was, you know, one of the great coaches in the history of this game. He's not well known because it's been so long ago. But certainly he was a great coach, and he, he turned out a lot of winning teams there at Michigan. And let's face it, that's a great place to start. Sure. And if you come out if you if you come out of college understanding the game well, which Benny must have, then that gives you a leg up on everything that you do from then on. You're starting from a good place. And and he did. He started at a great place. The University of Michigan ultimately makes it to New York as a member of the New York Giants. And one of the biggest games the Giants played was an exhibition game against Notre Dame. We're still talking about the building of professional football and really putting it on the landscape. How big was that game against Notre Dame in terms of how big was it for professional football? Well, you have to remember the era. The college game was still the big thing. And the pro game is still trying to prove to sports fans that it deserves to have a place in their level of interest, in their sphere of interest. And any time you can get in that particular situation, any time that you can find yourself in a promotable situation, which playing Notre Dame was, then then you move forward in, in getting attention to yourself. I've, I've been in the auto racing business for 23 years now, and I work closely with promoters. And I know that the number one thing they have to have is an attraction. And sometimes you have to prove that you have one, and that's, that's what games like playing a, a collegiate team did in the early years of the National Football League or playing mm-hmm. barnstorming things where you go, maybe you play a local team that's not a member of the NFL. It's just a group of local college guys who's still in shape. And so they would barnstorm, and they might play in – someplace uh, where there isn't really a league team. They just do it to, to, to get people into, into the stadium to make a little money. Well, that also spreads the interest. Um, it's like what Major League Baseball did in the old days the, in spring training. They would, they would go around and play local ball clubs uh, during the spring uh, to generate interest. Um, you know, my father saw Babe Ruth play. Um, when he lived in Birmingham, Alabama, during a spring training situation, they came out and played the Birmingham Barons. My dad wow. saw Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. It's the same type of thing that we're talking about with with uh, this game between the Giants and, and Notre Dame. It was primarily a promotion. The professional game at the time still just, it wasn't as big, obviously, as it is today. And players who were great in college didn't even necessarily pursue a professional football career. Benny did, but it wasn't all it was. he thought it would be cracked up to be, and he wanted to be a coach. And I would say that his life after the professional game was somewhat sad. He wanted to coach a big college program, and he just couldn't get that kind of job. He bounced around a little as an assistant, coached a few semi-pro teams. Then he got the job at CCNY. He stayed there a few years. And then he got the job at Brandeis University for a startup program. Tell me about his life 
after the professional game and how difficult it was for him to get a job as a head football coach. Well, he started coaching when he was still in the pros. Um, uh, you take a look at, at the information that I have, and he was an assistant coach with the Giants the last two years he was there. And then he became the uh, coach of the Brooklyn Dodgers ball club. So he was a coach for three years there. Um, he had one winning season. He had two losing seasons. But that's where he got his feet wet. And when he was coaching the Giants and playing for the Giants, he was also an assistant at Yale. Let's remember that in those days, professional football was not the sign a contract, get rich, and retire, and be wealthy for the rest of your life type situation. Sure. Most of the most of the pro football players had other jobs that they worked during the week, and then they you know they practice a few times and they play the games and pick up a few bucks playing the games, but it was not really a full time gig. So uh, Benny. I, just based on what I know, he sort of laid the foundation for what he wanted to do after he was done playing professionally by being an assistant coach or being a head coach of the ball club he was on and also coaching at Yale. So he really started in those years when he was around others and, and um, why he wasn't hired at, at, at larger schools, you know, who knows? It's very difficult to tell. Um, I haven't read anything about... Uh, a reason for that. Um, it's very possible that uh, his career in the pros was a turnoff. Remember that there was a very strong feeling among college people that the professional game was not something that that uh, young athletes should be involved in, uh, at least in the 20s. Uh, people looked down their nose at professional football as a profession. And so I, I wonder if perhaps his association with the pro game didn't in some way impact his attempts to become a, a coach um, at one of the larger schools. Interesting. You know, I just want to go back one more time to his induction into the Hall of Fame that, you know, it took so long. Do you think there might have been anything to the fact that he fought for the players of his time to be included in pensions and the Players Association and the NFL did not include players of his era for pension benefits, and he fought that, and, you know, it never happened. Do you think that might have been a part of the reluctance to elect Benny into the Hall of Fame? Well, certainly that's a good question. As I say, I'm not a voter, and I don't I don't really know too many of them, so I, I couldn't I couldn't look into that and say that's for sure. But I would say that that um, Benny's nephew was the person who gave the acceptance speech when he was inducted um, all those years after he finished playing. And Benny's nephew said that one thing for sure: if his uncle was there, he could have sat down and told you more than you wanted to know about his career. Hmm. And uh, I, I think that the reason he got in was that he didn't let people forget about his era, which we shouldn't do. We should not forget about that era because that's the era that founded the league and right. founded the game that we all love. And uh, I think that probably um, it's possible some people look and say, well, he, he made so much noise he rubbed people the wrong way. I don't think that's the case. I think he made noise and helped people remember 
Now, why the decision was made for a cutoff in terms of the pensions and things like that, I'm not qualified to answer. Um, but I do know that Benny was a, a, a very um, vocal adherent to the idea that uh, players from his era, which means the beginning of the of the league, should have been included. That's certainly what was his uh, viewpoint. Sure. So, Lee, to sum it all up, if you were to tell someone about Benny Friedman and what made him so great and why we need to remember Benny Friedman, what would you say? Well, I would start out, it, it would have to be somebody that knows me, so forgive me if I, don't, if, if I start out at the very beginning. In my <laughs> view, the greatest player this game ever saw was Sammy Baugh. He was the best passer of his era. He led the league in interceptions one year, and he today is still one of the best punters of all time. Without Benny Friedman, there is no Sammy Baugh. Wow. Without Benny Friedman, there is no great passing attack that the Chicago Bears put together, that Howes put together with Sid Luckman. Without Benny Friedman, the game doesn't open up and we don't get those 25,000 people a game in to see the New York Giants in 1929. Without Benny Friedman, maybe the Giants fold. Without a strong team in New York during the Depression, what happens to the National Football League? So it is my view that Benny Friedman and the things that he did that are not quantifiable the things that he did helped establish the National Football League as a great sports venue. And if we forget what his stats are because we're not sure what they are, we still take a look at the fact that George Hallis said Benny forced them to change the shape of the ball because it made the game open up and made it more exciting. George Hallis said that. And if we take a look at the fact that the passing game became the thing that made things so exciting for uh, the 30s and 40s, the fans of that era, then we must sit down and say thank you to Benny Friedman. And so in my view, Benny did things that don't show up in the statistics, but they do show up in the fact that we still have the game we have today. That's my opinion. That's terrific. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the Professional Football Researchers Association? What is it? How did it get started? And what makes it so good? We were founded in 1979 uh, by a couple of guys in Canton, Ohio, uh, to foster the study of professional football as a significant and athletic institution in our society, uh, and also to establish an accurate history. And we work very hard at, um, at preserving the history of the game and researching it. We hold a conference every couple of years, and we typically get attendees from around the world. Our last one in 2016 was uh, at Lambeau Field in Green Bay, and we had members from four different countries and two continents who came to that. Um, one of the really great talks we heard, presentation, was about football in Europe. Uh, it was, I mean, that was absolutely a terrific presentation. But I would say, you know, without without bragging too much, that we are the foremost research group when it comes to the history of professional football. And our members produce a lot of books. Um, we have one that's getting ready to come out, the All-American Football Conference, Players, Coaches, Records, and Games, 
Um, it's a groundbreaking study of the old AAFC. Uh, corrects a lot of statistics and corrects a lot of other things. Uh, we have 19 different members that worked on that book, so that'll be out, I think, in October. Uh, McFarland and Company is going to publish it. And then we have another one coming out uh, next year about the 1958 Baltimore Colts. So we are pretty thorough in our research of the game of professional football. If someone wanted to find out more, how would they do that? Well, the best thing to go would go to our website, which is www.profootballresearchers.com. And all the information about uh, how to join and, and what we do, it's all there. And, and all the information about our 2018 convention in Buffalo, New York, is there. And uh, if they're interested in daily updates, they can go to our Twitter handle, which is football history at football history and uh we put on something on twitter pretty much every day whether it's a birthday of a hall of famer or some oddball football happening that happened we have something just about every day on our twitter handle lee thank you so much for joining me on sports forgotten heroes you've been a terrific guest and i hope you'll consider coming back again sometime it would be a great joy to do that i enjoy talking to you warren because you and i have similar interests and i hope that all your listeners uh, start listening with great frequency because what you do is in is in line with what I think we need to do as a society, and that's not to forget our founding fathers of our sports. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. After his playing days were over, Benny served in the Navy as a lieutenant commander on an aircraft carrier. A new university was established in Massachusetts in 1948, Brandeis, and Benny served as the school's athletic director from 1949 until 1963 and was also the school's first football coach, holding that position from 1951 through 1959. Benny conducted a long and unsuccessful battle to get pre-1958 NFL players included into the league's pension program. And some say that battle is partially to blame for his unsuccessful lobbying for years to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. After failing at both, Benny basically faded away. He had heart problems and suffered from diabetes that led to a leg amputation. On November 23, 1982, sadly, Benny took his own life, leaving a note that basically said, he didn't want to wind up as an old man on a park bench. In 2005, long after his death, Benny Friedman was finally inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, an honor that was long overdue. Ironically, he was inducted with two of the game's greatest passers, Dan Marino and Steve Young. For more on the Professional Football Researchers Association and to learn how to join the organization, please check out profootballresearchers.com. It's really a great group, and the information available on the site is terrific. For more on Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit sportsfh.com. There you can find out more about Benny Friedman, learn how to participate and ask questions of future guests, Make comments and make suggestions on forgotten heroes you'd like to hear about. That's sportsfh.com. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Bill Lamberty of the Society for American Baseball Research will join me to talk about one of the greatest players in the history of the Kansas City Royals, Amos Otis. 
thanks again to today's guest, Lee Elder, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.